Hello, friends. Happy Wednesday and happy early Thanksgiving. I hope we all have some amazing plans to get some really good food and you all have an amazing time and enjoy the days off work if you have them. And if you don't, I hope work's not too crazy. But we're going to have a really good time on today's episode because we are finishing up Daughter of Red Winter by Ed McDonald. And y'all, this ending. All right, we're going to get into it. But before we do that, you guys know how things work around here. So I've got a couple things to chat about and then we'll jump into it. Um, First, make sure you hang out till after because yet again, we have an amazing interview with another author. Um, We're also going to be telling you guys what is going on um, next week since we're finishing the book a week before the month ends. I have a special episode for next week and we will be revealing our December book of the month pick. So make sure you hang out till the end of not the full episode, but the end of the book discussion. I'll throw out that information for you guys and then we'll get into our interview. One thing to talk about before we get into that is If you guys got your tickets to Romanticy for next October in Orlando, please, please, please let me know because I want to start a group chat so we can all share dress ideas for the masquerade and we could all talk about, you know, what we're wearing and if we're wearing masks and how dressed up and how fancy we're going and if we're going to have like an after party anywhere. I've got lots of questions. So if you're going to Romanticy, let me know. And let's get a group started. I already know a couple of the authors that are going to be there. You guys have heard their interviews, a few of them already. Um, But I'm super excited to meet everybody in person. And I think it's going to be a really good time. So if you're going, let me know. Let's start a group chat and get ready for this amazing weekend. Also, um, I do have signups in my link tree. You could get that off of any of my profiles. Um, But I am doing signups for our Winter Solstice Book Exchange, which is basically Secret Santa, but with books. So if you're interested in that, please make sure you sign up. Deadline to sign up is December 2nd, and then you'll mail out your gifts by December 15th. So if you're interested, please, please, please let me know. I think this could be a lot of fun. And I do want to try to make this an annual thing. So if you're interested... Just go ahead and hit that Google Forms in the link in the link tree. Um, and again, you can find that in any of my bios. I'm super excited for it, but um, let's go ahead and jump into the rest of this book because I've got lots to talk about. So I'm trying something a little new today for our tea of the week. This is a tea that I personally have not tried yet, but I am definitely ordering. Um, It fits today's episode for a couple of reasons. One of those is that we have 
talked to this author who also runs this tea company. So, Danny, if you're listening, here's another shout out. Um, and the company is Foxcraft Apothecary. And the second reason is that in my author interview later on the uh, later on in the episode, excuse me, we are going to talk about this fandom and it's brand new. So today's tea of the week is Astarian Approves by, again, Foxcraft Apothecaries. And like I said, even though I haven't tried it, it sounds like it tastes delicious. I know all of her other ones taste delicious. And I'm super excited to get this in the mail. And right now she is having her Black Friday sale on her Etsy shop. So make sure you check that out. And if you're a fan of Baldur's Gate, um, I think you guys will really like this one. And like I said, it is going to come back later on in the episode during the interview. So stick around. Jumping right into chapter 28 here, we have the entire group, the clan, coming back from their mission um, as they're returning to Red Winter, they find that Hieronymus is at the house. And as we know, he's from the rival clan. So nothing good is coming from that. He tells them that Ulivar was being detained um, until the trial began because new evidence was found against him. And what was that evidence? A shipment of dead bodies were found and one of those bodies was Ovidus's mother, also Ulivar's sister. Um, so obviously, he's linked to the Sixth Gate, right? Look, this evidence is weak. Weak, weak, weak. There's absolutely no basis to this whatsoever. <laughs> um, but that's that's what they're going on. And so they have Ulivar detained um, underneath the city, and they are forcing all of the apprentices to go through a test. And they have to go through Blackwell, which is the vault um, that has all of the wards on it that Hazia had originally broken into to get the page that started the entire thing. But as they go through that, they come back and they're completely not changed, but they're like devastated and they're like depressed and they're not eating and they're just like crying and sleeping a lot. And, you know, it was just a whole mess, but nobody will talk about what had to happen and nobody's giving any information as to what they experienced in Blackwell. And that's the information we find out in chapter 29. We also find out that Hess, you know, finds rain again and his boss wants to see him. If you guys recall, Hess is part of the, gravesite group um, that quote-unquote are working with the Queen of Feathers who, remember, attacked Rain last time we saw her. So I don't trust any of these people anymore. They take her to this, like, underground city that was buried in the Old War and, like, rebuilt on top of for the new city. Um, it reminded me of Rome in that aspect because they call it the lasagna. If you know Roman history, you, that will make sense to you. <laughs> if you don't know Roman history, um, it's because they, instead of like tearing down buildings, they just built on top of old buildings. So if you look at buildings, they have like layers like a lasagna. So there's the, the history behind that. But I really liked the imagery that I got in my head when I was reading this. 
just the pictures that I was imagining here was really, really cool. So I just really appreciated that kind of scenery that was created here. So as we're hanging out with Veritane and Hess and Najia, um, our previous idea of people having to die in order to get gravesite is confirmed. We learned that everybody who has gravesite had died, or at least part of them had died, like Najia had lost a child um, while it was still in the womb. So it was still part of her. Um, and that is how these people are getting the gravesite, which, you know, like we talked about a couple episodes ago, um, that was the idea that I had had on how these abilities came out. And we see Veritane's full figure. We see his hands are crushed and his eyes are literally gouged out. And this reminded me of the story of Liara's father, who said he was blinded, broken, and then thrown in the river. So this got me thinking that it might be Laria's father. So the Lake Shale clan that, um, remember, he had his mistress was murdered. He used some rituals in order to talk to her and then killed her murderer, who was her husband. And then because he was talking to ghosts, that was a forbidden power. And they had blinded him, broken him, and then thrown, thrown him in the harbor. So I don't know. It's just a little convenient <laughs> if it's not him that these two people have the same injuries. Because as we say, that's not the normal punishment for gravesite. The normal punishment is being stoned. Even Hess said that he was stoned. So I don't know. Just a thought. They tell Rain that they want her to protect Ovidus and they need to that she needs to protect him from his cousin, Savant. And she just like falls for this. And <laughs> she's like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, I have a lot of problems with this. One, I don't trust these people because of how the Feather Queen had like dealt with Rain in the last scene that we had. I also don't trust that they are telling the truth only because they haven't done anything to her except for like intimidate her and feel like she has no choice but to go with them and like kidnap her whenever they want a meeting with her. And they haven't done anything to prove loyalty to her at all besides not telling her secret, which they can't because they have the same secret. So in chapter 30, because she, for some reason, believes them, she decides that she wants to try to get information on Savant, and she needs to try to get that little secret notebook that he's always writing in. Um, so in the meantime, while she's trying to make a plan to do this, she goes to see Ovidus and learns that he had set, excuse me, he had set the apprentices in Olivar's absence to kidnap Castus. And... Rain tells him how stupid of an idea this is because it's going to start a clan war, and they simply cannot handle a clan war right now. But Ovidus accuses him of forcing Hazia to go into Blackwell and stealing the 
page and trying to revive the ancient Sarathi. But Castus escapes and leaves. Rain yells at everybody for doing this. She was like, you guys are all idiots. I can't believe you guys did this. This was a stupid move, yada, yada, yada. Um, And basically, like, takes charge because Ovidus finally is taking charge, but he's not doing it the right way. And it's really frustrating because we saw a really good leader out of him during the um, the issue that he was handling last week. And I thought, you know, that gave him potential. But as soon as he has to step up, he makes stupid decisions and he tries to strong arm, which we all know is not his strength. That's not how he's going to succeed. But that's what he tries to do. And Rain kind of has to put everybody in their place. In chapter 31, we have Rain deciding to find Hess to try to get some more information about the Feather Queen. Um, So she asks Asher to help find the drug den because Hess always smells like this specific drug, right? So she tells Esther, excuse me, she goes, I can't tell you anything. You just have to trust me and I need you to do this for me. And because Asher is ride or die, she's like, yeah, got you, girl. Let's go. And that's why we love her. But so they go and find Hess. Um, Rain goes and confronts him and learns that Hess had intercepted a message that Savant had sent. And the message was very cryptic tells her that Ulivar's girl is super strong and much stronger than people anticipated and very just doesn't make a lot of sense. But obviously, this is the evidence that we have to go off of. So we're going to go basically (laughs) throw Savant under the bus, even though we have nothing to go off of, because this letter doesn't mean anything to anybody right now. It just all seems way too convenient. All the information that this group of gravesiders are giving her are just way too convenient. It's too easy. Something else is going on here, obviously. But Hess tells her, hey, take this letter and you should expose Savant at the trial. So in chapter 32, Ovidus comes to Rain and is like, hey, I overheard Liara and Savant talking, and Rain thinks she's hit a jackpot. She's like, oh my gosh, yeah, tell me what they were talking about. I want to know more, because Savant is obviously the bad guy, right? But Ovidus is just like, yeah, Liara said that I was going to be a good leader someday, so obviously she's in love with me. And this is where Rain has had enough. And she goes off. Like, I'm pretty sure we all have been wanting to do since like pretty much the beginning. Am I right? Let me know if it's just me. But this guy pining over Liara since page one has just been like really annoying. (laughs) Um, But she goes off and there is one good thing that came out of this conversation, though. She did find out that Savant was leaving. So he's not in his room and she goes, "Okay, now's the perfect time to break into his room and get some information. So she 
goes out on the window ledge and shimmies around the building and breaks in through his window, goes searching. And what does she find, you guys? The little black book. And when she reads it, let me tell you, I laughed out loud. I cackled because Savant has been writing romanticy fiction. And this is perfect. Absolutely perfect. Because this guy is just like, it doesn't give me that vibes at all. So this was just like a completely unexpected twist. And I know it's not a big twist, but it's my favorite part of the entire book so far. Naturally, Savant catches her and basically calls her out saying that he knows her game and saying that, like, she's the bad guy because she's sitting there using Ovidus to, like, climb her social ladder and that she had seduced him and that Ovidus told him everything. And what was that? Ovidus told everybody that they, on their travels to Redwinter, were lovers. And that's why Savant has been kind of staying distant from her because he thought that she was just using Savant to try to, you know, make her own life better and that she was a user and an abuser in that way. And that explains his attitude. And it really makes me wonder, like, how the story would have progressed if this lie hadn't been started because I feel like there was potential for a really good friendship and a really good relationship between Rain and Savant that was absolutely devastatingly ruined by this little lie that Ovidus decided to tell. So then Rain takes this moment to confront Savant about what she thinks he's been up to and shows him the letter. And he explains to her, no, the letter's not about Hazia. The letter was sent out literally only a week ago and it's about you. And he was trying to tell the guy or the the girl, I'm sorry, the lady that had trained him about Rain so that they can train her. And so now they realize that there's just been so much miscommunication going around this entire time. And that's caused like 98% of their problems. And going into chapter 33, I love this chapter because it showed that I was right in my assumption that Liara's father was the blind man that we were talking to. So I was really excited to read this because I love when I like can guess the twist. And so this was really exciting for me because this one wasn't super obvious it was really more like in passing but obviously like these things have to come into play everything in the book means something nothing is just written for the sake of being written it all has another meaning so if you read about something that doesn't seem important it's going to come back later and that's this is a prime example of that but rain gets a note from them saying that Ovidus is in danger and that they need to or that she needs to bring him to them immediately for protection. She recognizes this as the trap that it is. 
and is working with Savant to not fall for it. (laughs) And she shares all this information with Savant at this point. She also doesn't tell him, but she does tell him, but like not completely because obviously she doesn't want to give away her own secret. But she thinks that gravesite allows people to get past the wards at Blackwell. And Savant confirms that he knew Hazia had gravesite. And so that totally makes sense. And he's a smart guy, so he obviously pieces it together. And even though Rain is willing to test this theory um, and to tell the Grandmaster um, what had really happened and who was behind Hazia's actions, Savant warns her that if she does this, her secret will be known. And she says, yeah, but I owe this to Oliver. He saved my life. And so I'm, I need to do this. And then I'm just going to bounce. So her plan is to gather all the information, give it to the Grandmaster, save Ulivar, and then get out of Dodge. And we all know that she had that stash of jewels and money that she's been saving up from under her bed. So she's completely prepared to do this. On their way to put this plan into action, she starts hearing voices. And it turns out that it is the Liara's dad. His name is Calhoun. I keep forgetting because I was calling him the other name for so long. Calhoun. Um, he's talking to her. And she finds out that it's through the amulet that she now can't get rid of. Like, it won't leave her hand. It won't leave her possession. But what she learns from Savant is that the amulet is tying a demon to her. And so two de- or a demon shows up. And then as she's running, she finds another one. And while Savant's fighting the first one, she's running from the second. She decides to run into the warded area of Blackwell. When she gets there, her suspicions are confirmed that, yes, it is gravesite that will allow her to pass because the wards are made up of spirits or wraiths, which are vengeful spirits, that are literally guarding the doorway. So if you run into one of these, it's described as like feeling just this overwhelming sense of dread and depression and sadness and it's debilitating which really fits with what everybody else was experiencing naturally because it was written that way but because she's able to see the ghosts she's able to just walk around them without touching them so she doesn't feel that sense of dread and sadness that they are projecting Once she gets in, she decides to summon the Queen of Feathers and demand help in order to defeat the demons. And because I feel like Rain never learns her lesson, she decides to make the dumbest deal with this creature that we still don't even know because we know she's not a spirit. Like, we don't know what she is. We don't know who she is. We just know that she's super old and super powerful. But Rain decides to make a deal with her for some reason. 
And obviously that deal is going to backfire. She didn't get anything out of it. And now she owes the Feather Queen a favor of her choice anytime, no matter what. So that is obviously going to come back to bite her in the butt. While down in the vault, though, she does find the bow that she had originally got in the catacombs. In chapter 34, she fights off one of the demons with the bow and goes back to where Savant was, who surprisingly won his fight, but just barely. He is hanging on by a thread. Um, So she calls Escher to go get the Grandmaster while she goes to check on Ovidus. And what she finds is that there's a letter that Ovidus left on her bed to kind of prove to her that Liara actually did love him. And it said that she just has to confess her love. She can't hold it in anymore. And he should meet her right now because it has to be done right this second. He doesn't recognize it as the trap because he's just so in love with her. And he goes, obviously gets kidnapped. (laughs) What's really interesting about this, though, is that the note is actually in Liara's handwriting. She did write this at one point, but she doesn't have any any recollection of doing so, which means that someone has been forcing her to do these things and then wiping her memory using the fourth gate. Again, totally fits the description of her father. Rain asks a couple questions and finds out where an entrance might be to get to the um, Undercity, is what they call it. In chapter 35, she gets down into the Undercity. She follows the um, chalk trail, and she overhears that their plan is to kill Ovidus and bring him back to life so that he has gravesite. And then his uncle will have to kill him um, because of the gravesite as a form of revenge for the uncle killing Calhoun. Sorry, I forgot his name again. (laughs) But the uncle had killed him, and so this is his revenge, is making the uncle kill his nephew. Obviously, Rain is not going to let this happen. And this was such a fun fight. Just the way that it worked out and the way that it was written. I really enjoyed this fight scene because you have Rain with her bow and arrows. Um, She also has the sword that Escher had given her. She, one of the arrows explodes. Um, You have this old blind guy using lightning. You have, you know hit all of his people running around. You have somebody catching on fire. It's just crazy and insane. And it was awesome. But how it ends is that once rain defeats Hess and Naja, they both turn into ghosts and Hess is angry about this. His ghost is mad. And just like a couple of the other ghosts that we've seen, he's able to talk to her, which again, we don't know why some ghosts are able to talk and some ghosts aren't, but he's actually angry that he was so fooled by Calhoun and he decides to kind of 
fight with Rain. And so what Rain does is she feeds her life force into his ghost so that he can physically touch Calhoun and kills him and drowns him. Obviously, Rain is not unscathed. And in chapter 36, we find out that Ovidus had actually had to drag her body out of the Undercity because the ceiling was collapsing. And he saved her life after she had saved his. So they take Calhoun's head to the trial as their evidence to release Ulamar, which I thought was a power move for starters. <laughs> and this is definitely enough for the Grandmaster. She immediately releases Ulavar and she makes Rain an apprentice. We skip a little bit of time and we have Rain and Escher that are laying in a field and they're just looking up at the sky and they have a sweet little moment and she says that Ulavar is looking for her. So Rain goes to see Ulavar and he just kind of tells her his expectations of her now that she's an actual apprentice as opposed to just a retainer. And the book ends with her laying her head on his shoulder and describing it as family. Like she feels like he's family. And I just really got a sense of belonging out of this. And it was so sweet. It was so sincere. And it's almost like the first time that I felt like she knew what she wanted and where she wanted to be. And this was it. After this, we do have a couple pages of better explanations for the different characters and the different like creatures and the different ranks and each different clan. And so I thought that was really cool. I wish I had found it sooner. Um, I feel like it definitely would have helped me reading the story, but I thought that was really cool that it was added in. Overall, I really like the story. I feel like it was a really nice palate cleanser because I've been reading a lot of romanticy. And so this just felt a little different. Um, but I did enjoy this read. Let me know what you guys thought. Let me know what you thought, what you think and how we've liked it. Give me your reviews. <laughs> um, but I'm really glad that I finally read this. It's been on my TBR for a while and it was, it was good. And the second one just came out. So I'm going to pick up that one too and, you know, see what else happens in the story. Cause this is a really good kind of ending, but obviously there's more. So I'm curious to see what happens. <laughs> so since we are done with Daughter of Red Winter, next week we are going to be doing the entirety of Iron Flame, which is the sequel to Fourth Wing, which we read last month. And I just really wanted somebody to talk to about Iron Flame. And so if you've read it or if you're reading it, um, we're going to be doing an episode on that next week and our book of the month for December. I'm really, really excited to share with you guys. We're going to be doing Nightweaver by RM Gray, which you all met her a couple weeks ago when we did her interview. And if you listen to the extended cut interview on Patreon, um, 
you're you're you know that this is going to be a good time. So um, you guys have a week to pick up Nightweaver. Um, I will post them in the Amazon links as normal and I will post the schedule as well. So keep an eye out for that. And before I let you guys go, I want to introduce you to our author of the week. So today we are talking to Serena Raven, who is working on her debut novel. So Serena, hi, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, So it is your first novel. I want to hear as much about it as you want to share with me. Ooh, all right. So this is, I guess, technically not my first first novel ever, but is it's the first one that I've ever put out into the public eye, the first one that I plan on trying to publish, whether traditional or self, which we can get into more later. Um, but I, I wrote a lot of stories that won't ever see the light of day. <laughs> this is the first one that is going to see the light of day. It uh, it came to me in a dream, actually. It I had this recurring dream of being this basically flying warrior that had to protect this country full of people who were completely helpless and were facing these attacks by this other country that had all this modernized technology. And these people I were protect I was protecting were completely helpless, and I had to do everything I could to protect them. And so that's kind of where the premise of my story comes from. Uh, it is a dual POV. Uh, there's two points of view. And there is that flying protective warrior in there. But then I added in additional layers of conflict after that. It's a genre mashup. It's I would say it's mostly fantasy because it does take place in an alternate world in a place where I invented the world and the characters and some fantasy races, but it also has themes of dystopia and some horror too. So it's very much a genre blender. um, And I'm super excited to share. I I call it a little piece of my heart because I really wrote this story from my heart and it it really feels like I'm putting a piece of my soul out into the world. So I'm really excited for people to, for people to read it. That's amazing. I love when genres blend because it's so hard to put stuff in like one specific genre nowadays, especially with how creative people are. Mm-hmm. But I love this premise. Is the warrior that really beautiful redhead that you have the art commission for? Is that her? Yes. Yes. I yes. So, love it. yep. The beautiful redhead. Her name is Scara. She is uh, the strong, like the strong female warrior type but uh, obviously she has a lot more depth than that she has an incredible fear of failure uh she kind of copes with her problems in unhealthy ways sometimes <laughs> so uh so yeah don't she, we all <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and then uh, my other character his name is hayden uh he's almost the complete not complete opposite but he's a 16 year old boy he's a regular human um, he's quiet. He likes to draw, but he also kind of has that drive and that force in him that drives him to act when things start to go wrong on his side of the world. Because both Hayden and Scara live in two different countries, but they are both facing kind of the same conflict, and they both deal it with it in different ways. So, I love that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Okay, so when did you um, start writing? Oof. So I actually started writing this way back in 2015. 
um, 2000, well, I kind of came up with the idea in 2014, um, after I kept having, for some reason in 2014 was when that recurring dream just kept happening and happening and happening. And I was at a weird point in my life in 2014. Um, I was in this relationship that, uh, I think was not good for me at the time. And, um, this person really tried to fit me into a category that I really didn't fit into. And I think the dream was telling me that I was destined for more, um, that this person was not going to be good for me in the long run and was not going to allow me to blossom into the person I was truly meant to be. So I think that's why I kept having this dream of me being this amazing hero was because I think my dream was trying to tell me, you're destined for more. So because I kept having this recurring dream, I just had to write it down. And <laughs> sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, no, you're fine. I love this passion. <laughs> I really do. Like, I'm yeah. so invested in this book yeah. that I don't even have yet. But I'm like, oh, my gosh, I need to know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Got my train of thought again. Okay. So 2014. Awesome. So, so I, so after I wrote this dream down, the story kind of developed from there. And um, I came up with the strong warrior um, who wasn't exactly like me because I didn't want to write myself in the story. I, I just don't like the way that works. I wanted to write someone else, but I still wanted to write a strong warrior. Uh, but then I wanted to, I don't know why I came up with the idea of dual POV. Um, I, I don't, remember at the time where that came from because again this is 2014 I don't even know how long ago that was it was a while ago so I came up with this idea to um, have another point of view from where the conflict was coming from and so by the time I got all these ideas together it was 2015 so in May of 2015 I started writing um, I wrote exclusively in Google Docs because I had a train commute at the time and I just wanted to write on my phone um, so 2015, I started writing it and the story kind of went nowhere, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately, I wrote 122,000 words, over 122,000 words that went absolutely nowhere. Oh no. And, yeah. And, and, and over the next few years, I, I kept trying to fix it. I kept trying to go back and edit. I kept trying to come up with new ideas and it just was not working. I ran into this huge writer's block and ended up just dropping the whole story for, several months actually um and then the strangest thing happened um i saw this music video i don't to this day i don't know what music video it was like don't i i don't know what what it was because i saw it like halfway through after they had shown the artist info but it depicted a tall pale man with black hair and white eyes walking through a dark forest i don't know why that inspired me to finally write my villain but finally i had a villain and from there, it just the creativity exploded in my mind. I was like, okay, I have my villain now. I know how this ends. And then from there, I was able to layer in more and more conflict uh, that I obviously don't want to share for spoiler reasons. But now I had this whole character. I had this whole villain. I had a direction. And um, the title of my book changed. Um, over half of it changed. And... I was able to then go back, and even though I had to scrap over half of those 100, I'd say even most of the story, the only thing that remained the same was Hayden and his best friend Elsa. They are still there. Um, they they have been there since the start, but everything else changed. Um, the strong female warrior changed. Uh, where she lived changed. Everything changed. 
And now here we are today. Um, the completed story is about 111,000 words. Um, pretty long, but uh, again, it's a dual POV, so I kind of had to get both of their point of views in there. Uh, so yeah, now we're here. Um, I have been querying it, um, but I am also not opposed to self-publishing as well. I'm kind of going to be deciding that beginning of January. Um, that's kind of when all of my queries reach their end point. And some people query for two years or more, but I'm just like, I love this story. I am so passionate about it, and I want to see it out in the world. Even if I have to self-publish, I'm not opposed to it. I think it's a totally valid way to go about publishing nowadays, because traditional publishing, as I've recently discovered, it's a whole can of worms. It is a whole can of worms, and I think self-publishing is just as valid Maybe I'll traditionally publish a different novel because I've got other novels in the works. So maybe I'll just do that. But either way, this story comes from my heart. I want to see it out in the world and I will do whatever it takes to see it out there. Fantastic. And yeah, self-publishing definitely has taken the book industry by the throat almost. It has changed the way that authors can get their books out and... I personally love buying self-published because I feel like the author gets more out of it. For me personally, I am a control freak. So I think I would personally choose going with the self-published, but you know, everybody has their own, <laughs> their own uh, way of doing things. Yeah, exactly. And even if I do find an agent and a publisher and let's say, for example, they want to add in a romantic subplot that just do- does not make sense. I'm going to be like, Nope. I don't want that because actually my this current book, Shadow of the North, does not really have any romantic subplots. Um, and I want to keep it that way. There is a like, I do have this planned as a series. Um, the, the Shadow of the North can be read as a standalone, but I do have series planned for it. And I do plan for there to be romance in future books. But the one thing I don't want is for somebody to be like, OK, well, Hayden and Elsa, they have to get together now. And it's like, no, 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 no. I purposely wrote Hayden and Elsa as best friends. I think boys and girls, even teenagers, can still just be friends. And I, and I think that would be really refreshing because I think so many people just assume, oh, it's a male and female character. Obviously, they get together. But no, I, I don't want that. So if somebody comes back and they try to make me change my story, I'll just be like, right. nope, no, thank you. Yeah, there's some things that you write that you're just like unmovable on <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> And you yep, have to exactly. be. Exactly. And that's kind of some, Yep. Yeah, and that's kind of something I'm hard and fast on. No romance in this book. I want to work up to that. I love so. that. Yeah. The, yeah. the slow burn um in a series specifically like when you it's over multiple books can be so sweet like once it finally happens. Yeah. You you don't want to rush it just for the sake of romance. Absolutely 100%. Um, can you give us some like insights into your writing process or um, any weird quirks that you need when you sit down to write? I honestly think I am the. Oh, sorry, that was you're fine. Start that over. Um, I honestly think I have the weirdest writing process. Share <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people either fall into two categories, and we've all heard them, the planner or the pantser, and I'm a strange hybrid of both. I, my quote-unquote 
planning is literally a word document where I word vomit everything onto a page and that's my planning. Perfect. <laughs> like there's there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just like here's all of my ideas for the book and here it is on one page and then from there I write. And sometimes I'll go back to that brainstorm word vomit page and I'll tweak things as I need to or I'll add more detail or I'll start connecting plot points. Um uh, it's like that one gif of charlie day where he's got like the papers and the strings and that's that's kind of that's like my writing process it's like it's so disorganized and it's just all these ideas plastered onto a page and sometimes i'm connecting things here and there and and that's that's kind of how i write um so that's kind of why i consider myself a hybrid planner and pantser because it's like yes i do sort of have a but it's this chaotic mess that I refine as the story develops. So they're kind of interconnected is my plan and my story kind of feed off of each other and they kind of change as they go. And I think that's my biggest tip for newest writers, which I know we might get into later, is if you do plan out something, you can always change it. I think that's what a lot of people fear about trying to plan anything in their novel. Oh, well, if I plan it, then I have to stick with that. No, no, you can change it. Your plan and your outline, like, it serves you. Like, you don't serve it. You can change anything at any point. Like, you can get rid of characters. You can change the direction that it goes. As you're writing, you find your story might end up in a different place than when it, where it started, and that is okay. Go back to whatever you had written down as your quote-unquote plan and just change it. It's not that big of a deal. Another thing that's weird about my writing process is I tend to write in massive chunks. So some people say, oh, you should write a thousand words a day. No, for me, it's like I'll spend like a Friday through Sunday not eating, not sleeping, and I will bang out like 10 chapters oh. at once. <laughs> it's 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 pretty crazy, but um, that's just the way I write. Like once I get... It's like in tidal waves, like the creative ideas just flow in a massive tidal wave and they all have to come out at once. And then I kind of pull back. I look at the destruction. and I'm like, all right, we're going to walk away from this for a bit. <laughs> and then we're going to come back to it in a week and we're going to keep going. So, so yeah, I'm a weird combination of uh, chaotic planner and pantser. And then also I just write in these massive chunks. And I think that that is very important for people to find what works for them. Don't listen to someone on the internet because they told you, hey, you're supposed to write X amount of words a day. If that doesn't work for you, then don't do it. Find your groove, find what works for you. And that's what's important because if you try to follow somebody else's formula, you're going to get stuck and it's not going to work for you. I definitely agree that everybody is going to have their own you know, kind of way that that works for them. And you're not wrong. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever received yeah. what you might consider as bad advice? Ooh. Hmm. I'm trying to, I know that I did one time and I'm trying to recall what it was. I think it was something like you shouldn't ever use exclamation points in there was some post it was going around this writing group where this person had made all of these rules and some of them were so outdated 
like, oh, you should never write X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, why not? Or you should never do this, this, and this. It's like, okay, why not? Some rules in writing are meant to be broken. Not all rules are hard and fast. So I would say, yeah, I can't remember the exact specifics of bad writing advice I've received, but I just know that some people think that you have to follow a super rigid formula for writing, and that's just not the case. Um, some rules can be bent. Some rules can be broken. I mean, look at George Orwell's The Animal Farm. He wrote a literal entire book on talking animals. And when you boil it down to that, it's, oh, haha, a book about talking animals. Who would read that? Well, we all know how important of a book that is. It's such an important book. It's such an important piece of literature. And yeah, it's talking animals, but it's super important. Yeah, the first time I read know? Animal Farm, I was so confused. I was like, is this supposed to be a serious book or not? And then like, once you get through it, you're like, dang, that was, that was deep. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So it's, yeah, rules can be bent, rules can be broken. And a lot of the time you will see that in a lot of literary novels where there's going to be some weird stuff in literary novels and it's going to be weird and you're going to be like, what is going on? Why am I here? Who is talking? What's going on? But then you get to the end and you're like, oh, that's <laughs> why. <laughs> um, You had mentioned earlier that kind of the spark of inspiration that you know, kicked you back into gear was finding your villain in a music video. Um, do you have, besides your dream, like anywhere else that you have drawn inspiration for this specific book? Oh, absolutely. I would say my other number one inspiration for this book um, has been the Maximum Ride series by James Patterson. Um, and you can probably tell from Scar's commission, she's um, a person with wings. And um, Maximum Ride series by James Patterson, that series honestly changed my life. <laughs> um, I ate those novels up so fast. James Patterson, for those of you, for anybody who has never read James Patterson, his chapters are like one to two pages long. And when I first started reading that, I was like, what is going on? And, and that's again, that's what we talked about, where rules are meant to be broken. Like that... People will say, oh, your chapters need to be X amount of words or X amount of length long. Well, James Patterson, his chapters are literally one to two pages long. And it's like big font, too. At least Maximum Ride was a really, really big font. So his chapters are maybe a couple, few hundred words at most, but it still works. He still makes it work. And so that was the first thing that really changed my life. I was like, wow, I didn't know that it was legal to only write one to two page long chapters. Not only that, um, but the way that he would describe these bird kids and the, and the way they flew. And I don't know how he managed to do this, but he made it seem so realistic. You could almost feel what they were feeling, even though humans having wings and flying is not a real thing. Somehow James Patterson managed to make it seem real. You could really get into the characters' heads and feel what they were feeling. So that was a huge inspiration for me. I was always obsessed with the bird kids of Maximum Ride. I always wanted to write a story with these people who had wings. So that was really another major inspiration. And while my book is not really urban or sci-fi or apocalyptic like Maximum Ride is, it ventures more into the dystopian fantasy that is also my biggest inspiration was um, a lot of the language that he used helped me write my characters um, because they have wings and they can fly as well. 
And how how long are your chapters? Because you did say it's a it's a pretty long book. So I'm curious, like getting a lot of inspiration from James Patterson. Like how how long are yours? Uh, my chapters are anywhere from three to five thousand words. Um, so they're a little bit on the longer side, um, but then I do have a few shorter chapters that are about like two thousand in, the, in there too. So, so yeah, they're they're a little bit on the longer side. About, but when I was looking it up, I saw that most fantasy books, that's that's about average, is around like three thousand. And I was talking to some another fantasy author who said she's writing like six to seven thousand word long chapters i'm like all right well you do you again like there's no rules so so you you right. do what makes you have those do seem like long like six or seven thousand that seems like a long <laughs> a long chapter yeah it, it is very long yes so besides querying this one you said you have a lot of other stories um in the process any that are are coming coming to a head here any that we might see soon yeah, so one of the um, works in progress that I have going right now that I'm about halfway through is uh, I have a dark ro dark academia romanticy, um, which I'm really excited for. So that one I took inspiration from. Actually, this one's inspired more by video games. I'm a big gamer, so um, I love playing video games. And this one takes inspiration from World of Warcraft and The Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. Um, it involves, there's, this isn't a dual POV, single POV, but we follow a main character who lives in kind of this frozen world with magic and wizards, and that's kind of inspired by the Skyrim world, because Skyrim takes place in basically the frozen tundra, and anybody can learn magic in, in Skyrim, anyone, it doesn't matter who you are. Um, so that's kind of where our main character comes from, and she meets somebody in this place that's basically this ginormous library containing all of the knowledge ever. And uh, she meets somebody there who is trying to find out who killed his family. And uh, the villain is inspired by some villains from World of Warcraft, which I don't want to say which villains because that would be a big spoiler, but um, that's kind of that's what that's about. And then I have another one that I'm planning out for NaNoWriMo or NaNoWriMo. I don't... I don't know how people pronounce, pronounce it. it? Yeah. <laughs> I've only ever seen it. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it, but um, however you pronounce that one, I have a, it is a murder mystery. So I'm venturing away from the fantasy realm um, into the murder mystery. But the reason why I want to write this one, it's, um, it features small town goths, which I grew up in a small town in Minnesota and I was a goth person and all of the, kind of discrimination I faced and the stigma that goth people face and um, it kind of explores those themes um, where these people are threatened by losing the one place that they feel at home and the one place that they feel accepted so um, yeah there's basically a murder at this place where they consider home and because there's a murder the threat the city threatens to shut this place down so that is that is a thing that I am planning for November. I grew up small town. I was a little more on the alternative side. Um, and so I, yeah. I completely understand. I had like the hot pink hair in this very small, yes. <laughs> small town. So I definitely got the discrimination a lot. So I totally get it. Mm -hmm. But that sounds fantastic, too. That sounds super fascinating. 
Are you going to play yeah. around with kind of like the the fam family with that one? Oh yeah, absolutely. This is definitely going to be a story of um, the main character has their found family in this place where the murder takes place and it's threatening to be shut down and they might might be losing their found family because of that, which is really upsetting. So, so yeah, I think the not only the murder is going to add the layer of conflict, but also them on the verge of losing the one place that they really feel accepted. Um, another place I'm drawing inspiration from is kind of my life today, because I, I also have a found family um, in my life today. And um, if, that if that was threatened to be taken away from me, which it has a few times, um, they've threatened to shut this place down uh, in Minneapolis a few times. Um, and if that happened, it would displace thousands of people like this is this is kind of like one of the go-to places for a lot of people you know marginalized communities and all that other sort of stuff or people that feel like they're not accepted by their families um if this place was shut down it would displace a lot of people and so that's kind of that's also kind of where i'm drawing for this story too i hope that doesn't happen that would be so sad <laughs> yeah it's not in any yeah, it's not in any danger right now, but there have been, like, some people who are just like, eh, I don't like this place because, eh, nah, 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 and, and it's just like, okay, well, that's just your opinion. You're always going to have sharing. people that don't <laughs> want different people to exist, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, well, I don't want you to exist, mm -hmm. so <laughs> move on. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you said that you're a big gamer. What are you currently playing? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, currently playing Baldur's Gate 3. Same. Uh, <laughs> yep. And uh, um, just started actually a four-person campaign with um, two friends. This is something that me and my spouse do every Sunday night is we play with two people that we met out in New York State. Um, so I live in Minnesota. These people are out in New York State. And we met the we met these people um on world of warcraft i used to be a really really big world of warcraft player like competitive like we were doing all of the high achievements like the stuff that you know the trying to achieve like the top percent of player type of stuff um but i haven't haven't touched that game in a while i i always like to say i've been clean of world of warcraft for a few months now just because uh, there's a reason why World of Warcraft has the stigma of people living in their basement and having no life. Um, I can attest that that game is extraordinarily addicting. Right. Um, not just from a gameplay perspective, but the people you meet are just incredible. And the relationships you form and the bonds that you create are amazing. So we met these people um, on World of Warcraft, and we just started a four-person campaign uh, in Baldur's Gate 3, and that's been a lot of fun. I also have my own solo campaign going. Um, Gail approves. That's all oh. I gotta say. I was gonna ask. <laughs> I, um, Gail <laughs> has approved of me multiple times, and I keep telling him no because I'm, like, trying to save myself for Asterian, but this yeah. guy... Is so hard to get under his skin. <laughs> I'm like, yo, yep. what do I have to do? Like, go kill some babies? Like, what? what's going to make you happy here? <laughs> I have read that a full-on evil playthrough is the way that you get Astarian to like you, apparently. So that's what I've heard, my too. Kind of, 
Yeah, my kind of plan is just just kind of have a separate like evil playthrough just for for those purposes. So, but yeah, I've heard the same from other people where they're like, I wasn't even trying to romance Gale, and here he is like trying to make it, out with me. <laughs> he made me a picnic under the stars, and like he is teaching me magic. You know, like how a guy will like come up behind a girl and like teach her how to golf or whatever. I'm like, this is what oh, he wow. did to teach me magic, and I was like, Gale. Try one more time and you're going to get a yes out of me, though, because he he's really convincing. <laughs> oh, my God. He is a charmer. He he's is. like the classic romantic. Just, yeah, he's totally a long walks on the beach, uh-huh. like wine, you know, candlelit wine romance dinner type. And oh, yeah, I totally feel that. So. <laughs> So oh, yeah, Baldur's Gate 3, um, just before Baldur's Gate 3, I was playing Starfield. Um, I am obsessed with Bethesda games, and I am obsessed with their storytelling, and I definitely draw a lot of inspiration for them. My first Bethesda game ever was the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, which a lot of Bethesda people They don't like Skyrim, and I can see why, but for me, it was the first open-world RPG I ever played. I've played, I'd played MMORPGs before, but those are a little bit different. This was my Mm -hmm. first single-player RPG. I ate that up so hard when I first started playing. It's like, oh, you start off, and suddenly you're the chosen one, and there's dragons, and I, oh my god, I I fell in love with that so hard and so fast, and Skyrim will always be the OG for me. It will always be my favorite foray into the video game fantasy world, um, and like I said, I have, I've drawn inspiration for that, so... So yeah, I love Bethesda games. I was playing Starfield right before I was playing Baldur's Gate 3. Uh, it's just been a really great year for video games in general. A lot a lot of really great ones have come out. And um, I think Bethesda, a lot of people, I might get a lot of hate for this, but I love Bethesda's storytelling. Um, I love being the chosen one. Some people don't like that. I love it. I want to be the chosen one. I want to be the one. I want to be the one that everybody's talking about. And I think that's why I liked Skyrim so much is because you can become the leader of everything. (laughs) And some people don't like that. But I was like, heck yeah, I want to be Archmage. I want to be leader of the Dark Brotherhood. I want to be the leader of the Thieves Guild. Just give it all to me. I want to be I want to be the hero of everything. I just (laughs) I just eat that up so hard. So so yeah, um, any Bethesda game, I I actually, I was so excited for Starfield that I went out and Impulse bought a brand new computer just to play it, because <laughs> it had it had such high requirements, and I was like, all right, well, I guess we're getting a new computer, here we go. Yeah, I didn't play it, because my I don't think my computer could keep up. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I can play some pretty intense games, like I did like the Hogwarts Legacy um, but I know Starfield was a little bit more intense than that. So my husband played it because we just built him a new streaming deck. But yeah. um, I, I did it. And you know, it, it was too sci-fi for me, which I love Bethesda, yeah. too, because didn't they do like Bioshock? Or was that uh, am I am I mixing up my studios? I don't think they did. No, Bioshock studio. Maybe they didn't, yeah. What studio made? Oh, no, they didn't. Oh, it was 2K. Okay, yeah, no, I'm mixing that up. But um, Bethesda is is a big name in the gaming world. And yeah, Skyrim definitely was one of my first, like, open world fantasies as well. So, 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know <laughs> if you've ever picked up the books that are in Skyrim, but there's a lot of books in there that have these short stories that are actually really good. <laughs> I'm like, like I could just sit here and have this library and I could just read books within Skyrim. Like how meta is that? Like I'm just literally, I'm just sitting in this game reading this book because that's, and that's all I want to do is I just want to read all these books. <laughs> it's stuff like that that really makes me wish that they would make Skyrim the VR that so many people have wanted and like you know the mods have done it but yep. I really want like an official VR Skyrim can you imagine how amazing that would be so fun fact I actually did play Skyrim in a full VR set once um a friend of mine has like the really crazy expensive setup where uh he has the points all around his living room and you put on the full headset and you have to have space around you and all this other sort of stuff and I actually did play Skyrim that way once and let me tell you I did not want to leave and I am so glad I do not have that set up at my house because I don't <laughs> think I would ever see the light of day again like I would literally just go up to stuff and Picking up objects didn't really work all that well, but I tried and sometimes I would just sit there and I would just sit by a river and look at the mountains and oh my god, I I will never forget that experience as long as I live. But yes, they need to have more support for that. But then again, I'm like, would my family ever see me again? <laughs> Special experience though. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I was playing the uh, the VR Darth Vader, um, and I would just, like, stare out to the planet. I'm like, this is gorgeous. I love this. I'm just going to hang out here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, Skyrim would be dangerous, but so special. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they've. I, I watched a YouTube video where this guy analyzed. He was like, why is Skyrim one of the most popular like what 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 about it changed it it kind of changed the way people looked at video games and it's because it feels real skyrim with all of its flaws you can talk all day about how the quests are flawed blah 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 yes it is a flawed game it's not perfect i'm not trying to say that but it's it feels real that's why mm -hmm. people love it and that's why i fell in love with it is because they built this world that feels like it exists somewhere and i think that is so important um for video games and for authors is you got to build this world that feels authentic and just everything that they did from the characters to the environment to the music to the sound effects it all fits it all just fits seamlessly into this atmosphere that is just that just feels so real and it's just so easy to get yourself lost in this world because it's like wow I actually feel like I am in an alternate universe now until you clip through a chair but you know that's okay <laughs> you have to let go of reality a little bit just to like get a little more immersed and that's fine that's fine <laughs> yes yes Things glitch in real life too. You know, we we all joke about the Matrix, but who really oh, knows? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, do you do any other hobbies besides um, gaming? Yeah, so this one this one's a little out there, but um, I'm also a circus artist. 
Um, I do. So if you've ever seen Cirque du Soleil and you've seen the people doing all sorts of crazy acrobatics on pieces of fabric or hoops that hang in the sky, um, I do that stuff. Um, yeah. And, uh, it's a really great way to stretch out all of my limbs and bones after being hunched over a computer for hours on end. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I teach aerial silks um, and I also perform on them. I do stilt walking, uh, fire spinning. Uh, yeah, just kind of, I kind of do a little bit of everything. So yeah, I, I teach and perform circus arts and uh, that's that's just that's kind of a fun, interesting thing that I do. It's a little bit out there and people usually kind of don't know what to think. But um, I've been doing that since 2016 is when I first started. So uh, after I started writing. So I was a writer before I was a circus artist. But that's kind of like my main hobby. That is so cool. I'm not flexible yeah. enough to do any of that. I've looked into like the aerial yoga before, um, but I've never done it. But Honestly, like I started off not flexible at all. Like I was always the kid growing up who I would be in gym class and all, you know, all the other girls would be like doing the splits or like touching their toes. And I was always the super inflexible person. I grew really fast. I'm really tall and I grew really fast. So my bones outgrew my muscles. Like fa So yeah, my bones grew my, grew my muscles fast. Blah, what the fuck am I trying to say? <laughs> I, since I grew so fast, uh, my bones outgrew my muscles and I became really stiff. I had no hamstring flexibility, but doing circus arts actually helped me gain flexibility. And the nice thing about, um, like you were, like you mentioned, aerial yoga is you gain flexibility by doing it. That even if you don't start off that way, it's a really good way to gain it. So, so yeah, I started off not flexible at all. And um, it took me three years, but I eventually did the splits after three years. So that that was a cool thing. Congrats. Love it. I can't do the splits well. I look, <laughs> I feel my age sometimes and I'll get out of bed and my back will hurt. I'm like, dude, all I did was sleep. What's happening right now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Like such a fun way to stay in shape, too. That's wonderful. Yeah, a lot of people say they blow off steam by writing. It's like, nah, that's how I blow off steam. Um, writing is definitely my creative outlet. It's where kind of all the weird ideas that are constantly swirling in my brain, I can put them onto a page. And then uh, when I need to physically blow off steam, I, I go to the circus studio. So, yeah. Perfect. Did you have to do any research when building your, your fantasy worlds? Actually, yeah, I ended up, and I think this really helped along my writing process. Um, when I got back after I took the hiatus from the book, when I when it was really going nowhere, um, what I did is I took a few master classes. Um, I took one by N.K. Jemisin, who we all know is you know one of one of the best fantasy authors in my opinion out there. Um, she has a whole course on fantasy world building. Um, which basically how it starts is you start off with a globe and then you put your landmass on the globe somewhere and it's basically building it from the ground up. Okay, where is your landmass located on the globe? How does that affect the weather there? How does it affect how all the plants grow there? How did the animals become? Everything from the ground up. Um, she has a whole course on it. I highly recommend it if you're really into fantasy world building. 
Then she goes into people and cultures and political systems. And it's a really easily digestible masterclass that just talks about how to build your fantasy world in a way that feels believable. Um, and so that people can actually grasp it without there having to be, you know, this massive info dump. So I think that was a really good course that I took. Um, I took another course from the ever amazing Margaret Atwood. Um, she also has a master class on writing and characters. Um, I also recommend hers. I think Masterclass, you can do like a 30-day trial or something like that. Honestly, just go on Masterclass, get your free trial, watch every single author video you can. They actually did really help me a lot and hearing from, you know, these famous authors and they don't do it in a way that's arrogant or, oh, you just need to do it like this. They actually do break it down into something that I feel is easy to grasp and something that is realistic for any writer at any stage, I think the information that they have is super valuable. Um, and and so, yeah, I did do some research um, by taking some master classes. Um, I had to do a little bit of other research on um, because in Hayden's world, his um, his country is ruled by the military. So I had to do some research on military rankings and um, places that have had a military rule enacted and what it's like to live in a place where the military controls everything. So I had to do some research on that. Um, definitely had to do some research on surviving in the mountains and in caves um, for spoiler reasons. <laughs> so, so yeah. Yeah, so we definitely had to do a bit of research, um, but but yeah, that's 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 kind of about all I did. But I definitely do recommend um, master classes for anybody that's looking to kind of get into writing and uh, and do doesn't really know where to start. What's the weirdest thing you've ever had to Google for your for your book research? How long does it take blood to dry on your skin? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I just thought of another one, yeah. of another one that I had to Google where I did feel like I was going to be on a watch list after this was um, how long can you stay awake after being shot in the chest? Oh, boy. Yeah, you're definitely on a watch list somewhere. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> oh, and how, lo how long can you stay awake? Oh, God, I don't even remember how long it was now. It wasn't very long, though. It wasn't long, though. And I think it also depended on were you shot, like, in the chest chest or through the heart? Oh. <laughs> so, like, it also, so it also depends. And and in this case, it was in the chest chest, like, not through the heart. So, so you can, you, you can stay awake for a little bit, but not, not, not long. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any um, favorite tropes or themes that you find yourself like repeating a lot? Definitely. Let me see. I, I actually have a list here. So one of my favorite tropes that I did not write in this book, but it's still one of my favorite tropes regardless that a lot of people hate this trope. Okay. I'm just going to say a lot of people hate this trope. I eat it up. Love triangle. Ooh. I love, love, love triangles. And I definitely want to write a love triangle at some point. And I know a lot of people hate them, but I absolutely love them. Um, <clears throat> one of the tropes that I love or the tropes that I love that I put in my book is uh, secret society. 
um, love a good secret society, hiding from, you know, they're anarchists, trying to hide from the world. Um, you need special access. Nobody knows about them. You stumble upon them by accident, if at all. Um, another one is The Mentor. Um, I have several books on the hero's journey when it comes to fantasy books, and there is almost always the mentor trope where it's somebody that the main character meets who, because the main character most often cannot do this quest or this journey alone. They need somebody to help them somehow. So I have the mentor trope in there, somebody that helps the main character with their quest, with their journey. Um, another one is retrieving the special object. That's another big fantasy trope where there is some sort of special object that you need in order to complete your journey, complete your quest, and you cannot continue without this special object. Um, another one is, and this is already pretty obvious in like my premise, is Quest to Save the World. Uh, my my book is definitely about high stakes, very big picture conflict. Um, very much we need to save the world we need to save everybody and then uh finally this has always been a favorite trope of mine and it is a trope that i included in this book is ordinary world to fantasy world uh hayden lives in the ordinary world and uh he's seeking to get into the fantasy world and he wants to get into the fantasy world so um that's always been a super super favorite trope of mine you know, it appears in Harry Potter, it appears in Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, Ordinary World of Fantasy World will always and forever be my absolute favorite trope because um, a lot of people, I think, when they're children, they think that they're going to grow up to go to Hogwarts one day or they think they're going to find Narnia one day. That was me as a child. Um, I wanted I wanted to find the fantasy world. I didn't want to grow up to be an adult and do adult things. I just wanted to be whisked away into a magical realm where I where taxes don't exist. So <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, ordinary world to fantasy world is another is I think probably the biggest trope and uh, one that's in my book. So yeah, I never really thought of that as a trope, but you're right. Like that's a major part of a lot of people's childhoods and mm -hmm. it's definitely like a major part of my life even as an adult my husband and I are talking about moving because I'm in Arizona right now it's hot mm -hmm. I hate it but <laughs> we're talking about moving um more like mid to east of the country and I've been yeah. looking at like where can I get a cottage style house <laughs> Like, where's the best oh, place to go yeah. where I can live like a witch in the woods, but have indoor plumbing? And <laughs> it's it's a process, but I'm like, as soon as we move, I hope that I can kind of live a little bit more fantasy in my real life. But. I I think, yeah, a lot of people, myself included, I, I would also love that. I would just love to be that witch in the woods. Or just, like, have that house, you know, that isolated house way up on the mountain where mm -hmm. nobody really knows who lives there and they're super mysterious. And, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a dream to me. I'm like, if I don't need a big mansion, I don't need a million cars, I want a little cottage with indoor plumbing and a lot of houseplants and a library, I would be happy for the rest of my life. <laughs> yes. Yes. A hundred percent. What are you currently reading? 
Uh, I am currently reading. It's a science fiction book that my mom got me. It's called A Splinter in the Sky. Ooh, I've got it right here. Uh, a Splinter in the Sky by... I super apologize if I mispronounce this author's name. Kemi Ashingiwa. Um, that's three words. First name Kemi, last name Ashingiwa. Um, it's a space opera, and I am loving it so far. There's a lot of really great representation in it. Um, and it does say, perfect for fans of N.K. Jemisin. So, so yeah, that is that is the book that I am reading right now. It's not a fantasy. It is a space opera, which I actually do like sci-fi as well. Um, I think sci-fi and fantasy almost kind of go hand in hand because they do feature an alternate world. And the magic is just a little bit different in sci-fi. It's usually more science-based, but there's still things that you wouldn't see in the normal world. So, yeah, reading a space opera right now. That's awesome. I love space operas. Love it. Yeah. That's amazing. So what are some key themes or messages that you explore and why are they important? So the biggest theme in Shadow of the North is overcoming your failures, no matter how many times you fail. Uh, it's something that I've experienced personally, and um, it's something I explore multiple times in the book. Uh, I have that in there because in my real life, um, several years ago, actually, this this is so funny. It's the same year that I started writing. Um, uh, it's the same year that I started writing this book, 2015. I was fired from what essentially was at the time my dream job. Um, it came as a complete shock. I was completely blindsided. I did not see it coming. And that made me feel like a complete and total failure. I felt that my whole life path was just upset that I was not going to go anywhere in life. I had landed what I thought was this dream job. And out of nowhere, the whole world was just ripped from me. This whole plan that I had for my life, this whole world that I had lived in for a year, it was all just, it, it was all just shattered. Um, and that was really hard for me. And, and I, so I'd explore that in my book. It's the idea of your whole world can shatter around you, but somehow you have to figure out how to keep going. It's something that both Hayden and Skara experience. Um, Skara may not, or may or may not experience it multiple times. <laughs> um, <laughs> she actually, actually in the premise of my book, it does say that she, is um, exiled from the ranks of the Nighthawks, who are the sworn protectors of her country, Reverdane. She, that whole world is ripped from her, and she has to deal with that. Um, same with Hayden. His whole entire life is ripped from him, and um, he gets himself in way over his head, and he almost fails multiple times, and he has to figure out how to get through it. So that's really what it's about is reaching the lowest of the low point in your life and trying to figure out okay how do I continue from here everything has changed my whole life like this picture that I had painted for myself is gone what do I do so that's kind of the major there's a lot more uh, there's a lot of other themes there's some minor themes in there like Freedom of speech is not equal freedom of consequence. Uh, that's another thing that it's one of my favorite things that I explore in there. So that's another kind of minor theme. Um, so yeah, but yeah, that's that's kind of my biggest theme is experiencing extreme failure, 
not just like oh i lost my sports game it's like okay your whole world was ripped from you what do you do now i didn't that kind of therapeutic for you actually yeah it has been yeah um just kind of seeing my characters go through these extremely dark moments and um them having to pick themselves up and trying to figure out how to how to go from there just like i had to do they went you know they go through what i went through and and it's it you know made me feel a lot less a lot less alone wonderful how do you go about developing um your characters and do you draw inspiration from real life people actually no i feel like i'm unique in the fact that um my characters almost develop themselves so i'll write out you know i'll have a basic idea of who they are what they look like what their desire is and what is stopping them from achieving that desire and then as i start to write i find that the characters almost start to develop themselves i don't know if any other writers experience that this i've never really asked anybody but at least for my main characters I definitely feel like they develop on their own as the story progresses and they kind of it's almost like they're a real living breathing person they just start to blossom on the page as I throw scenario after scenario on them and I watch how they deal with it so I think that's been a really interesting thing that I've learned in being an author is watching characters develop on their own that was not something that I was expecting to experience but it is something that I experience is that these characters feel so real to me, especially as I watch them kind of deal with situations on their own. Some minor side characters I will model after some real life figures. Like, for example, I do have one side character who I modeled after every role that Michelle Rodriguez plays. <laughs> kind of that that um, no nonsense warrior fighter. Like, I've got a lot of female warriors in this book um i had to Meh. but um one of the major side characters who happens to be scara's best friend and ex-girlfriend is basically the embodiment of michelle rodriguez so if you like michelle rodriguez i have a michelle rodriguez in my book <laughs> that's great and you're not alone in thinking that you know the characters take on a life of their own i definitely have talked to a lot of authors that um express that as well saying that their characters do what they want, regardless of what the author wants. <laughs> so right? you're you're not alone in that at all. Mm -hmm. But that sounds so fascinating. Okay, Serena, um, we I don't want to take up a lot more of your time. So thank you so much for hanging out and talking with me today, answering all of my questions. Where can we find you online? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at serena s-i-r-e-n-a underscore raven r-a-v-e-n underscore author author spelled normally uh that's my instagram um i love instagram so i do try to post there as much as i can i'm also pretty active over on twitter aka x i don't know what the kids are calling it these days i still call um, it twitter it's fine <laughs> okay i still call it twitter too so i am at serena author no underscores it's just one word serena author over on twitter um that's where i am now um so yeah you can just find me on those two places and if i end up going on more places i'll probably announce somewhere on one of those full and please let me know 
once you have a release date for this, I am very excited to dive into these dual worlds matched together. So please, 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 I'm going to be keeping an eye out for for that coming up soon, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I think I said at the beginning, um, beginning of 2024 is when I'm going to kind of make a major decision of whether I'm going to go uh, traditional or self. So keep an eye out for early 2024. I'll probably have a big announcement as to what I plan to do. Yeah, I'm so excited. All right. I will keep an eye out for that. And again, thank you so much for hanging out. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and good luck in all your future books. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me here. All right. Bye. Bye. So that is all the time we have for today, but thank you so much for hanging out. I love you all and I appreciate you all. And please join me next week as we talk about Iron Flame and go ahead and pick up your copies of Night Weaver for December. But until then, have a wonderful weekend, have a wonderful holiday, and we will see you guys later. Bye.